0: How about now? All right, there we go. All right, so good morning, everybody. Sorry that if you were online, you're like, I can't hear anything. <laughs> all right, uh, well, I'm so glad all you guys are here in spite of the snow, and if you're watching online, welcome. It's snowing outside. You might want to look outside. It's pretty much glorious. We have snowmen outside the church right now. That's kind of exciting, in and of itself. Uh, it is, it's been quite a storm, not only this morning, but this week, hasn't it? Uh, When you see stuff like images of the Capitol being rushed uh, and you're just like, what is going on? And uh, whenever a protest uh, turns violent or destructive, it it moves people from a place where they want their voice to be heard to the frustration it feels like nobody's listening. And that's why um, you see people taking... uh, circumstances into their own hands in that overwhelming sense of frustration. And what happens, what happens is when, is when we feel like I need to be the one that corrects it and makes it happen, and that God is not in control. It takes us away from uh, really the heart of where God wants us, whether, no matter what side of protest you're on. Whether it's about abuse or injustice or fraud, it takes you to a place where I'm going to be the one that's at the center. And here's the thing that, that's so difficult about this is that as Christians, right, as Christians, um, we're kind of like, let me think of a good way to put this. Since it's playoff season today, we are like the NFL referees, right? And uh, today the Bears and the Saints are playing in New Orleans. And uh, there's going to be another set of people on the field that are representing New York and the New York home office of the NFL. And they're there to uh, make sure that things are fair. They, play, they go by a certain book and they are uh, adhering to that while players and their team are vying for contention and victory. They are sort of above the fray. Now, here's what's so tough is that we're called to look after the welfare of the city as well as be the conscience of a nation. And so you always have that just awkward, weird place where it's somewhere feeling just a little bit uncomfortable. And that's okay. In fact, um, what really is going to be the beacon of hope is that when we as Christians live out who we are called to be. And so um, this morning, that's sort of the direction that I want to take us. If you don't know who I am, my name is Chris Plekenpaul. I'm the lead pastor here, and we do questions, and if you have a question, text us, and I would love to get to your questions, and we will uh, answer those in my Pastor Plex podcast. So this morning, really, we're going to get to a place where we're going to be talking about toleration, all right, and specifically, the church's toleration of sin, which is always a super fun thing to talk about, And uh, it makes everyone really warm and comfy. It's it's like, it's just such a cozy topic to talk about. But when you're preaching through God's Word, uh, God's Word brings up stuff, and you can either A, avoid it and make everybody feel good, or B, just going to dive into it and make everyone more holy, right? And I think that's where the direction we're going uh, this morning. And so kind of brought to mind, um, uh, back in the day for me, when I was at West Point, we had an honor code, all right? An honor code simply said, a cadet will not lie, cheat, or steal, or tolerate those who do. And the lie, cheating, and stealing, that that was fine because that was dealing with you. It was the toleration part of that because we all know that snitches get stitches. That is just a part of life. And so you have to have this thing where you did not want to be that. You did not want to rat out your friends. There's one thing to sort of rat yourself out, but to rat somebody else out, that became really hard. And I remember on uh, one particular day, I was a, a sophomore, I was taking a, a calculus test, and the way that it worked is um, our professors, we didn't call them professors or profs, we called them P. So that, that's like how hardcore we just abbreviate all the way down to the letter. And so the, the P said, um, hey, listen, uh, make sure as, as soon as I call, you know, end the test, you know, you, you put your pencil down, you don't write another thing down. Uh, that would be an honor violation. It was really clear on how we took, we had to take classes on honor, and so it was like, this wasn't like a, I didn't really know kind of a moment, right? So the end of the test comes, the, the piece says, time's up, go ahead, restack your desk, go turn your paper scene next week. And so as I'm uh, taking my paper to go turn it in, I noticed uh, that my buddy uh, Randy is writing something furiously down, and then he's like, you know, do it off to the side and. And I'm like, I'm confronted with the toleration clause. I'm just like, ah, no, I wish I didn't see that. I wish I could unsee what I saw because that's my buddy. And if I, I mean, there's like about a, a, you know how a thousand thoughts can run through your mind in like one second? And I'm like, uh listen, I mean, is it really that big of a deal? It's not really that big of a deal. I mean, it's probably one answer. I mean, it's not in the big course of events. Who really cares? You know, it's whatever. And the second is like, I don't want to lose a friend. He's a good friend. This is West Point and getting kicked out. Oh my gosh. And then, you know, the third thing, I was like, this is hard. We're doing hard like math. This is not easy. And, you know, maybe, you know, a little extra time for him was a necessary evil. And let's just sort of roll with this thing. And I can feel, and what's it, it, it's strange, I don't, I don't want to call it Holy Spirit conviction, because I don't think that it was, but I felt like the weight of the honor code sitting on my shoulders. I don't know if you can use, it's like, I'm just like, uh, and I'm going up, and I'm feeling like, and then eventually I'm like, I, I go up to Rand, I, I hit him, and I go, I saw it, man, got to erase it. And I'll never forget, he looks at me like I just like totally like, you know, you know, witnessed him shoot somebody. And um and, go, and he erased it, and then he turned it in, and I was like, Phew. you know, it was like just one of those moments, right, Where I was like, thank God, all right, and the reason I tell you that story is I think, I think, I think, when it comes to evil, and when it comes to church, that's sort of the way we feel, like we know evil's not good, but I don't want to be, you know, I don't want to be that guy, I don't want to I don't want to give Christ a bad name. He's already got the name of like, he's all about rules and all about whatever. And and I know my life's not perfect and all that. And so I think there's this tendency to tolerate evil in church uh, because we think there's a lot of gray between right and wrong. And we get caught up in it. We're like, "Well, well, and we start talking ourselves out of what's really right, what's really wrong. And is that really sin? Is that really not? I mean, who knows? Um, or, how about we're afraid of people's response? People aren't going to like us. I- I'm about to become that person who is the judgment person. And everybody's had their wounds in church, whether they deserved them or not. Everyone's got issues. And-, and here's the reality here's the reality. Let's, let's just be real. Somewhere in every one of our histories, a guy who said something about sin, and you you took it the wrong way, and you kind of held that in your heart. Whether it was justified or not, they said it the wrong way, they did it the wrong way. And so therefore, we kind of want to just back off all that. We're supposed to be like, you know, the hospital where all the wounded people come. And so why would we ever want to confront anyone? Because is that really our job? Or, I mean, honestly, we feel like some things are a necessary evil. Like, <laughs> I mean, that's just it's cost of doing business. I mean, you, you want to exist in Austin, Texas, for crying out loud? You just stuff you got to do. There's there's some compromise you got to make. You can't be an an ideologue out here. You've you got to have some pragmatic reality checks that uh, is going to allow the church to exist. And I and this is where. I really want to check in with Jesus because uh, we've sort of elevated this thing of toleration to the ultimate, like, value system of our culture. The ultimate value is we tolerate. And if anybody were to cross that line, then it's like, you, have conv- you should be convicted of the ultimate sin of not tolerating. That's actually the greater and can I just, just be real with you? The church that doesn't confront sin is the one that doesn't have power and will eventually die. I mean, it doesn't, it, you don't have to be a, a rocket scientist to look at mainline denominational churches and watch their ultimate demise because there is no more power there. And you want to experience Holy Spirit power. It comes from the ability to see sin and overcome it by the power of the blood. That Jesus came and he died on a cross and he rose from the dead. Not because stuff doesn't matter, but because it does. And he's going to give us the power to overcome the sin in our own lives. And the sin even of the culture that's just expounding. And so, and so this is the place where it gets uncomfortable, but without that uncomfort, there is no power. And that's why you, when you've ever said, I felt it, it's because the Holy Spirit was working, convicting you of something on the inside and saying there's something that needs to change and be transformed. Because platitudes maybe can help you get out of a rut, like you needed to hear a good word, but confronting sin keeps you out of the rut keeps the darkness at bay, keeps pushing it back. And so uh, this morning, that's where we're going to go. And um, would you mind praying with me as we get into Revelation chapter 2? We're going to start at verse 12. We're going to look at two churches today, Pergamum and Thyatira. And we're going to watch what and see what God is going to reveal to us this morning. Father, uh, thank you. We worship you. And we need you. In a world where um, toleration has become an ultimate value, uh, God, I pray that we would be one that that looks at evil and calls it evil. And recognize the own evil in our own hearts and we repent first here before we start repenting uh, or getting others to repent. That there would be this sense of I want to find something in my own heart where I can um, repent from in another in other, in other way that I can move the gospel forward, that I can have it seen in my own life and then seen in the lives of others, that that power would not just be stuck in me, but would just go and be shared. Thank you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray, and everybody said amen. Okay, so we're in Revelation chapter 2. We're gonna look at two churches, and uh, I thought I'd show you my quick chart. I'm not gonna go through it like line by line, but here's a quick chart of where we're going. So we have Pergamum and we have Thyatira, and we're going to have a, the doctrine of Jesus, a praise, a rebuke, and a promise. And so that's, we're going to see that all through Revelation 2 and 3 as uh, the seven churches are addressed specifically. And so um, in Pergamum, we've got Jesus, the ultimate judge over life and death. Thyatira, he is completely seen as the son of God as opposed to son of man. Uh, he is both, but he's going to emphasize that. Uh, the praise is that they're, they're going to be faithful to the point of death, even martyrdom. Uh, the praise for Thyatira they have love, faith, service, patient, endurance. Uh, the rebuke then is going to be toleration of false teaching for both of these churches. And then finally, the promise is the overcomer. The one who can overcome false teaching, the one who can overcome the darkness, is going to receive blessing. That's sort of the thematic elements of that. We're going to walk through it verse by verse so that you can fully wrap your head around where Jesus is taking us. All right, so we're going to start off in Revelation chapter 2. We're going to start at verse 12 with the church of Pergamum. You guys ready? All right, good. Here we go. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. Now, listen, the, sh- the words of him was the, the, the sharp two-edged sword. Here's what this means. And Pergamum was the, the capital city of the province or uh, of, of Galatia, of that area. And so the Roman rulers, the imperium, had uh, power over life and death. In other words, had the power of the sword. And so they could take life, uh, that that authority, that if there was somebody who had committed a crime that was uh, heinous enough, they could judge that person and had the power of life and death. And so Jesus is always speaking into relevant, like how he is even greater than the local power of that day. All right. So Jesus sort of asserts himself as the one who has the true power over life and death. Now, I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is. And so you're like, what do you mean Satan's throne? Well, there are three temples there of worship, and one of those was a, a, a temple to Zeus. And so many kind of called that one the, the throne of Satan, because he was sort of like the greatest of all Greek gods. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny uh, my faith, even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. And so what happened is what scholars and traditions sort of said, is that Antipas was a, uh, a local physician and uh, he was suspected of propagating Christianity secretly. And then they accused him of disloyalty to Caesar. And then he was condemned to death. And the way that they killed him is that at the temple of Zeus, they had this brazen... Uh, bronze uh, bull, and you could open up the bull, and you could stick a person inside, put the bull, like, so your head would be where the bull's head is, and you know, clamp it down, and then you light uh, it on fire, this copper, uh, sort of heat it, so you heat from the bottom, and then the, the sounds of the, the, the man crying out for death would ring out and make the bull look like it would come alive. And so that's how Antipas who was uh referred to by many scholars as the Bishop of Pergamum died in the land where Satan dwells because of his faith in Jesus, and so if you've got like your church leadership they're committed they're they're in this it's pretty hardcore like they're willing they're on fire in not only spiritually but physically, and that's sort of this beautiful thing of where this propagate and so you'd say like Jesus, what could you possibly have against a church like that, which even if you're and this is, you guys know this, there ain't nobody here perfect. Like, even if you're willing to go get burned to death for the sake of the gospel, there is, that doesn't mean you have it all together, right? Nobody's going to like, well, except for me. I mean, I, I mean, Antipas may have fit some other issues you need to work out. No, and here's Jesus. I have a few things against you, and he's about to lay out for them uh, a, two primary issues that he has with the church. You have some there, who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. All right, so teaching of Balaam. You'll see this all throughout the New Testament, uh, the way of Balaam, it's called a bunch. It's, it's really a reference to Numbers 23, really through Numbers 31. And um, I know because everybody studies Balaam, but the person of Balaam you probably know better is Balaam's donkey, all right? He's the talking donkey. All right, so Balaam is this oracle of God. He's like going, you know, he's riding to the place where he's going to do his oracle, and then the, then the donkey starts smashing his leg against uh, the mountainside and smash him, and then he starts beating the donkey, and the donkey turns out, like, why are you hitting me? Have I ever done anything to hurt you? He's like, no, but you're not going the way I want you. So there's probably a reason for that. It turns out there was an angel standing right in front of him, and Balaam didn't realize it, and God was about to confront him. Now, what Balaam was doing was he was hired by Balak, who was king of Moab. And the king of Moab, Balak, was sort of a little freaked out by uh, the Israelites, two million of them marching along, splitting red seas and walking right through it, and then you know, parading around the desert, and anyone they came in contact with would lose. And so he's like, okay, listen, I know we probably can't defeat them because they got, they got the power of the God on their side, but we can curse them. And he knew Balaam. Balaam had, when he prophesied stuff, stuff happened. So he go, calls Balaam. He hires him, brings him up to the top of the mountain, said, curse those people. And Balaam's like, listen, listen, it doesn't work like that. I can't curse the people whom God has blessed. And then he pronounces a blessing. Balaam's like, what about a different mountaintop? Takes a different mountaintop, gives him another blessing. Takes him a different mountaintop. And Balaam's like, oh, I paid you money, good money here for you to curse those people. And then you don't read about the exact conversation, but Balaam apparently takes Balaam to a back Uh, cave, and he says, listen, here's what you do. There's no way I'm going to curse these people, but you can get them to curse themselves for a price. Let me up my fee just a little bit. And so he says, listen, here's what you do. Take some of your women, um, and uh, especially maybe the ones that are a little bit um, more promiscuous, and send them into the Israelite camp and have them seduce the Israelite men and then get the Israelite men to worship another god. Presto chango, they get their curse on themselves and they'll be dead. And it worked. Balak gets his ladies. He gives them like the you know, assassin mission, sends them in. They lead the men astray. Next thing you know, a plague breaks out. And the very thing that Balak hired Balaam to do and so that's called the way of Balaam. And Jesus rebuked Pergamum for tolerating those following the, the teaching of Balaam. Now, can I just... In different s- s- seasons of church history, this has been a real issue. But let me tell you the exact issue. The way of Balaam is deceiving or leading Christians to sin for financial gain. So... Um, Let's, let's go to one time in history where you'd be leading Christians to sin for financial gain when the Catholic Church sold indulgences. That's probably a great way to, You're leading people to believe, to think that my salvation is dependent upon, or my relative salvation is dependent upon me paying them out of purgatory. So the church gets the gain, and then I'm led to think a works-based theology or a... So it, that is a complete... Uh, heretical view, that is uh, an evil that was within the church uh, during medieval times, okay? Now, uh, for the most part, we don't have that in our day, and I was trying to figure out, like, what would be a something sort of that could happen here? It could be like this. You um, are um, a drug dealer. You come in here, and you get saved. Hallelujah. We are so glad we baptize you. In fact, we've had guys, drug dealers, get saved here, and then after church, you're like, listen, I got a man. I need some extra money. And on the way out or by the bathroom, you're pushing a little heroin or meth. That would be a way that, and we were like, well, you know, I mean, he just got saved. I mean, he's got to make a living somehow. That's about the only way that you're going to see that uh, being in our culture is if something like that was happening. It's intentionally deceiving people to go into sins for your own financial gain. And so what's really neat about God's word, it's timeless, right? So it's going to hit different churches and different seasons of life at different times. So this specifically would have been really great for the, the day of indulgence. Okay, so you're like, okay, that doesn't apply to me. Okay, hold on. This next part probably will, uh, Pergam, verse 15. So you also have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans, which you're like, Nicolaitans. Who are those people? Well, they've come up a couple times. And the Nicolaitans, uh, there's scholars all over the place on this, but they either align in one of two camps. One is where uh, they preached a, a complete non-priesthood uh, of believers, that there were only special people who were the priests, and they're the only ones that could read the Bible, and then they could interpret it for you, and then you just were told what to do, and you couldn't read God's Word for yourself. And then, and then uh, there's which I think this camp is more clear, is that Nicolaitans were um, a people who propagated... Um, license to sin. So instead of you got legalism, these guys were licentious. And so what licentious people would say is, listen, listen. Jesus came. Listen, read what Paul wrote. You are no longer a slave to sin. You are, there is no more sin. It's over. You can do whatever you want to do. And so uh, when it comes to um, sex, whether that's homosexuality, whether that is um, fornication or whatever, uh, you know, polygamy or whatever that is, go for it. Why? Don't let yourself be tied down to these archaic uh, laws of ancient Israel. That no longer applies. To which this gets back to the place, watch this, where there is no sin, there is no power of the gospel. Because when we, when we look at what Jesus has done, He has fulfilled the ceremonial law like, you know, um, kosher foods, um, being uh, circumcised on the eighth day, Like, he's taking care of the ceremonial side, but not the moral side. His design for men and women is still the same. That has not changed. And so what happens, the Nicolaitans say, listen, that's all gone. So don't worry about that. This is, um, there's freedom in Jesus. Okay, so he says about that kind of teaching, therefore, repent. Repent. And the beautiful, repentance is a gift, right? It's saying, I, it's God's kindness leads us to repentance and that joy that comes from, oh, I recognize my sin. I turn away from my sin and I turn to you, Jesus. And that's the hope and that's the heart of the gospel. Not that we might earn salvation or that we might enter into heaven, but rather that we'd have Jesus walking in our lives. So he says, therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and will war against them, Nicolaitans, uh, and uh, the way of Balaam people, with the sword of my mouth, meaning uh, I'm going to bring judgment with my word, okay? So Jesus rebuked Pergamum for tolerating those following the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, again, this is probably the place, if there's any place in church history where this applies. It's right now. We've, in our culture, we've moved away from right and wrong. We've moved to everything's relative. We don't want to call people by uh, pronouns because that might be offensive. Uh, we don't want to um, take people and really wrap their head around the fact that uh, there is a, a thing of sin. It was so bad, it was so awful that Jesus had to die on the cross for it. Okay, so and this is what makes church hard. This is the part that makes, um, especially in a progressive culture, this is where uh, church can be challenging. Uh, a couple years ago, um, we had a guy come to our church, and uh, he'd come from another church, and he was looking to be involved in leadership. And I, looked, I was really excited about him as a person. I was like, yeah, but I didn't know much about him. I said, hey, man, let's, let's get together. I'd love to hear about your heart. Maybe, you know, you have a leadership aspiration. We'd love to hear about that. And then he says, well... There's something you should know. Um, I didn't really exactly leave my last church on good terms. Um, And I go, well, what happened? He told me the story about an affair that happened and that, you know, he kind of ran from the church and he, you know, I felt they they judged him and all that. And I said, well, were they loving you or were you, and did you just reject it? He said, well, well, they could have handled it way better. I said, okay, fair enough. I think everybody could handle every point of confrontation, especially when it's evil and darkness, way better. I said, but you can't serve here. In fact, you shouldn't even be here if you haven't res- resolved things with the church you just came from. So we went back. And I said, will you agree with, to go back to the other church? We met the, the church leadership there. and um, We had several, like, felt like Geneva Convention style, you know, like we're all coming for peace talks. And he repented. And it was a really, it was a sweet moment. It was a beautiful thing. And I was like, I am a great pastor. <laughs> Look how awesome I am, and then and then some time passed, and then um, I saw that he started to do again. That's what he had done before, and now this became the temptation. Now he's involved in like some leadership stuff, and I'm like, Nyeh! and then I saw the thing on Facebook, and I was like, oh, why would you have to make it on Facebook? Because now I've got a, now it's like out there, and now I've got to say something, I have got to do something, I got to. Oh man. This is going to go bad. This is going to go very, very badly. People aren't going to like me. People are going to reject me. People are not going to, there's going to be a lot. Why did I have to see that? So what I did is I tried to look at a lot more Facebook things so I'd forget about the first thing that I saw. Do you guys ever do that? And, but then that one thing wouldn't go away, and I kept thinking about it. It kept coming back, and I was like, oh, my. Mm, all right, fine. All right, and so I called him. We went to Chipotle. Of course, that's where major peace talks happen. And, um, and this time he wouldn't repent. And he said, no, no, God wants me to be happy. God wants me to do what I need to do. I've had a hard life and now I deserve. And there it was. Does the church tolerate sin? And I was like, no, no, listen, Jesus died on the cross to free you from the penalty of sin so that you, you can repent at any time, and you could just say, Jesus, forgive me, and we can walk in the truth, and he couldn't do it. And he laughed, and it caused all, I got all the texts, and I got all the emails about all the, you don't care, and all, the, all of the, the church is just a legalistic place that just hates on people, and I'm like, come on. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what, I, you know, I signed up just, you know, kick people out because it makes me feel good when people send me hate mail. Listen to me. Do you want the church to have a place of power? Not in the sense of like power over people but power to change lives. It comes when we uh, focus on the God who is. We repent from the God who we want to be and we follow him. And this is the evil of our day. That we're called to repent from and run to our king. When the government or when the media or when whoever says, don't worry about it, we say, no, no, that's our role. We worry about it. We don't judge the outside world. We judge, we judge inside, right? We, we take care of ourselves if you're a Christian, if you call the name of Christ, we say, listen, live like it. If you've been freed from sin, meaning the penalty and the darkness and the hole on you, you are able to walk in freedom, not in chains. This isn't a place to come shut up, show up, and pay up. It's a place to walk in freedom. And that, my friends, is the gospel power. And that's why we have it. That's why we have real Holy Spirit conviction, real Holy Spirit power to walk in the truth. Okay, Twitch, you're like, okay, well, I got it. But how, did, how does Jesus see you through this? Now, what's so cool about this, he keeps going. He is, Jesus says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give him some of the hidden manna. Twitch, this isn't like secret underpants. Um, the <laughs> hidden manna, right? Because what's the reason why people went into the way of Balaam? For what? Money. For financial gain. Manna. What is manna? That was provision for the Israelites when? In the wilderness. It was their money, right? And so what he's saying here is listen, I got you. you, you listen, repent for that. You don't need any other money or manna other than that which I'm going to give you, and I'll take care of you. Trust me, I'll take care of you. Here and the hereafter. Okay, it's second part. And then I'll give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. What's this white stone? All right, so this is where scholars go all over the place on this one. But um, essentially, if you were um, under trial, right, if you, went, if you were at the court, there is a jury of some sort, and then uh, they put forth white stones or black stones for your guilt or your innocence. So white stone, innocent, black stone, guilty, sorry. There's, so there's that, like there's a sense of innocence and freedom, okay. But there's a, there's a, there was a, um, Pergamum was home of a, it's called a, a, klep, a klepion, uh, who was the fir- like the Greek god of the Greek god of, of doctors, okay. If you would say that, and what happened there is they had the temple there, and you would go there, and they had like in Pergamum they had like this great water, which I guess apparently had some radioactive. Uh, properties to it. And you would go and you would get healed. But what was really interesting about this temple is it would say, death is not permitted here. Meaning if you had something you could die of, don't come in here because we don't want to have death reputation. So it had to be something you could be healed of. All right. So you go in and then you'd, give, you'd be given something to drink that would, was like a sedative of some sort, And then they'd have like these snakes crawl all over you, which were non-poisonous, of course. And, uh, and then you'd have a dream it, this, this is real life, by the way. Uh, they'd have this dream, and then you'd, whatever dream you had, you'd tell the, the priest, and the priest would perform the cure based upon the dream interpretation. And then you'd leave, and you leave uh, the next day, and you'd write on this big piece of white marble your name and what you were healed of, white stone. So there's some scholars say, no, this is about, like, when Jesus ultimately heals you, and he gives you that unbelievable freedom is that what he's going to do is he's going to take away the sin and it's going to be something only you know that he's freed you from. He's going to write his name on you, on your heart. Freedom. Freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. Okay, so that's Pergamum. And then the shift then is to Thyatira. Verse 18. Uh, And to the angel... Of the church in Thyatira, right? The words of the Son of God. Okay, here we have, as opposed to emphasizing Son of God as opposed to Son of Man, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Going back to Revelation chapter 1, sort of uh, imagery. I know your works, your love and faith, and service, and patient endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. Now, I want to link two things. Love and service are linked together. When you love someone deeply, you serve them. That's like, it's not, it's just an extension of that love, right? And then when you have faith, watch this, when you have faith, an extension of your faith is that you're able to endure hard times. So love is linked to service, faith is, is linked to endurance, and that your latter works exceed the first. So like this church keeps getting better and better and better over time. So again, you're like, Jesus, what could you possibly have against this church that's loving and serving and doing all these awesome things? But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual morality and to eat food sacrifice titles. Okay, do you guys remember who Jezebel is? First Kings 18-ish, all right? She's uh, King Ahab's wife, a uh, Phoenician woman, uh, worships uh, Baal and is not exactly thrilled with the God of Israel, right? And so she tries to have all the prophets of God killed off. Uh, Elijah, you know, has this like, you know, he, it's like him verse 400 of all her prophets and, you know, Elijah wins, but then she sends word to him, I'm gonna kill you, it freaks him out, all right? So like she had a lot of pull. She would, whenever... Um, her husband, who was ambitious, was a little bit weak, she would take the pants, kill off any of her adversaries, and give him what he needed and what he wanted, as long as she could be in control of Israel. So she was sort of running Israel, uh, and so that's sort of like she had this really dark-hearted um, approach, and everyone sort of knew her as that. So she was the one that would want to look, take control. Now, so apparently a woman, not pro- probably not actually named Jezebel, but a woman who is looking to take control to lead uh, God's people to worship idols, okay? That's sort of the heart of it. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation. Now, what's really fun about this is the word uh, bed here is cline, like recliner, okay? So like you lay down. So the place of... In the bed is where you would have, that's where adultery would happen. But then also a bed of sickness is where consequence for that hap- would happen in the bed. Instead of having a bed of sexual pleasure, now you're in a, a bed of sickness and pain. All right, so unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead, which makes everyone go, Wow, Jesus. <laughs> And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give e- to each of you according to your works. Now, what is our works? Our works are as filthy rags. Our works are not based on us, but we're based on the, what Jesus has done for us. He is all of Christianity. Is not, I have to do, but rather it's done, and my hope and my faith go in what Jesus has done for me, and the fact he lived the life I couldn't live, and then he died the death I could not die, and he rose from the dead. Okay, so Jesus... Rebuked Thyatira for tolerating the teaching of Jezebel. To which you're like, I don't really follow what the teaching means. Well, I'll give it to you. So in that culture in Thyatira, it was a blue collar uh, town. All the all the craftsmen, all the carpenters, all the blacksmiths, all the coppersmiths, uh, all the smiths, all the blue collar guys. They um, that was a primary place of work. But to get, to maintain work there to be approved to work, you had to be part of a guild. And when you think of a guild, think union, okay? Now, the union had, it was, it was more than just like uh, a place to, for collective bargaining, okay? Uh, to be initiated into the guild, there were certain worship practices that would show your loyalty to Rome. Because Rome was all about Uh, Polytheism, you could worship any god you wanted as long as you also worship the emperor, as long as you also worship the primary gods of the Roman Empire. And so, to show their loyalty to Rome, and that would kind of help them out with the local government officials, they would have um, a worship service to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, and also participate in sexual immorality as part of the guild. And the prophetess Jezebel. Came to the church and she said, "I'm a prophet of God." Hey, listen. I know you're afraid that you're going to go to your guild meeting, and men, you're going to have to be doing some things which I know you don't want to do, and you're going to have to have sex with people you didn't want think you're going to have sex with. But I just want to tell you, it's okay. It's a cost of doing business here in uh, in Thyatira. It's just how we operate. It's how we roll don't worry. And some of the guys were like, sweet, you don't have to tell me twice. And so like, that was sort of the problem with it, right? And so you're sort of telling people to do what they already sort of want to do. And it's so like, I got a license here because this is just one of those things. And so I don't, I don't know necessarily if there is like um, a place in our culture where to go to work, you have to perform um, idolatry or adultery, although I'm sure there are, but perhaps it might be a little bit more dark, but less or perhaps more subtle. So you're you go to work and you have to to, for you to get promoted, you have to go to the, the party or the happy hour. And at the happy hour, people are, are talking and their, their talk is about one another and they're talking about that guy. And you make sure you talk about that guy too. So everyone sort of thinks you're on the same team. And that's sort of how you're going to get elevated because you want to make, you want to do better. You got to provide for your family, right? And that was the excuse. Listen, Jezebel said, Listen, you guys got to provide for your family. So you got to do what you got to do. Don't worry about it. I'll... Listen, God told me it was okay. Don't worry about it. It's a cost of doing business here in Austin. You've got to deny your faith if you're going to work at any big tech anything. And that's what happens. And then all of a sudden you're put up of you either deny Christ or you don't take care of your own family. And we know what the Bible says about that. If you don't take care of your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. And so all of a sudden, the pressure and the weight of what do I choose? And Jezebel came with this saying, listen, you got to take care of your family. This is the way God's providing through you, by worshiping idols. To which the church leadership was like, I guess she's a prophet, so that sounds like God, and didn't confront it even though they had love and service, and even though they had faith and endurance, they couldn't stand up to a city with regulations. The city and the government that said, no, no, for you to work here, there are certain things you cannot do. We don't talk about Jesus here. And you bow down at our place of worship. That might be, this might be more of the season for the church of the next generation that's coming really close. And so I think that's, that's why this is so interesting. You've got sins of the past, sins of the present, sins of the future uh, for a word from us, for us. But listen, watch like the hope that Jesus gives to the church. But to the rest of you in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan. That was like Jezebel's teaching. To you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. Now look, the ro- so first thing, remember, was the hidden manna. And then it was the white stone, now rod of iron. The rod of iron says, watch, I'm going to give you authority over the nation so that when you are ruling alongside me, Jesus, in the millennial kingdom, you'll set the rules of what it takes for you uh, to work here. And it's to honor God alone. So instead of you now being on the receiving end of having to be an idolater, you can be on the front end of glorifying our God in the millennial kingdom after Jesus returns. As when earthen, now he's going to quote um, Psalm 2.9. As when earthen, uh, pieces are bro- earthen pots are broken to pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, I will give him the morning star. The morning star is Jesus. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So that star is going to be given, you're going to share in his rule, you're going to share in his reign as that was God ultimately called us to in the beginning. And so ultimately then, um, what I want us to wrap our head around this morning is, is this one question. Is your tolerance hindering your obedience? And um, we regularly do this where we take time to, to celebrate communion. And this morning, I want us, as we're contemplating our tolerance, is there anything that we need to repent of? Like you've tolerated some things in your own heart. Maybe that's the way you treated your spouse. You tolerated the way that you treated your children. And you have not repented. And there's this place where if we can't love one another, if we can't be real before God in the way that we haven't loved one another, then there's a place where We need to repent from that because Jesus is wanting to do something really special in and through us. And so uh, Jesus, let me just explain this. On the night before he was betrayed, he took bread and he, he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In other words, my soul feeds on Jesus like my body feeds on this bread. And that same night, he took the cup, said, so "This is my blood shed for you and for all people for the forgiveness of sin. Do this and remember it to me." And um, we remember that Jesus died because sin is so serious, because there is evil, and His righteousness and His goodness is seen. In the fact that He would lay down His life for us, we love Him because He first loved us and He gave Himself for us. God demonstrated His love for us in this that while we we're still sinners. Christ died for us. And so my hope this morning is that um, while you are, we're going we're gonna to sing, we're going to have a moment to reflect, and we're going to take communion together. But in this time, it's our time to say, is there anything going on inside of me that I need to repent before God before? So that we can be a people who can lovingly tell one another that they're in their sin. Because the most unloving thing you can do is say, ah, don't worry about it. And they'll never change. There won't be any transformation. But perhaps you could be the, the person. It might cost you. But ultimately your joy comes from Jesus, not from people's approval. And so my hope this morning is that, that we would be a church that would repent before God and before others. Start with ourselves. Start with believers. That we might be a hope, a beacon to the world that's lost. Because Jesus is coming to judge one day. And my heart breaks for those who don't know him. Let's pray and then let's ask God to um, do a work in and through us. If you're not a Christian here today, this might be a time where you accept Christ for me the first time. And that would be my hope for you. Would you pray with me? Father, I know that you are uh, the king.